This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Thanks for coming. So this is the third in our series of fireside chats. We started this uh, several months ago when it became clear that some of the House staff in particular uh, really didn't know some of the amazing faculty that we have here. I, my first motivation was to uh, interview Holly Smith when someone asked, who is she? And Holly Smith, of course, <laughs> is a male and was the chair of this department for about 30 years. So um, uh, this is our third interview in this series, and I'm thrilled that it's with Andy Josephson, who is a dear friend, uh, probably the best neurologist I've ever seen, uh, one of the best teachers I've ever seen, and is now a chair of the Department of Neurology here at UCSF. So, Andy, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. There's we'll, no actual fire. But no fire. There's no that. fire. Fire. It, it's it metaphorical fireside <laughs> chat. Okay. Yes. All right. We're good. So, uh, format-wise, we'll chat for 20, 25 minutes, and then open it up for for other questions or comments. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. My upbringing. Okay. So, I uh, I was I was raised in Indiana. So, I'm one of the few Hoosiers around here. There's not not a lot of others I know. I don't hear any hooting. Yeah. No. From there wasn't <laughs> uh, grew up in Indiana. Uh, son of a neurologist. Um, also, son of a of a speech pathologist, and uh, you know, I had a really nice upbringing. My my dad uh, is a neurologist in private practice in the community, and so I think my love of medicine and and just taking care of patients came from him. Uh, I, he never pushed me or wanted me to go into medicine, but was delighted when I did so, and then was pretty blown away and excited when it turned out I went into neurology. Not anything I was ever pushed to. Uh, my mother's a speech pathologist by training. Uh, she ended up working her whole career it, with Head Start in inner city Indianapolis with a lot of disadvantaged uh, young people teaching them how to talk. Um, and that, you know, that to me had a really impressive impression to me. It, it ended up making me understand around the dinner table, you know, people who are much less fortunate and, and I think contributed to a lot of the reasons why I've, you know, spent so much time thinking about diversity in my career. And so... That was my upbringing, and then when I when I came out to California for college, I think my parents, you know, it was the scariest thing ever for you know a guy from the Midwest flying across the country to mm-hmm. to get an education to them was was scary. But I, I I really enjoyed being out here. And do you remember going around with your dad and seeing a was there a particular patient or a particular experience that's, that that ta- taught you that I actually well, want to do this for my career? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I certainly remember my father bringing me to the office and hooking me up with various EEGs and EMG leads <laughs> uh, for various reasons. The other thing I always tell, you know, there's a lot of med students here who I've encountered. I tell the same stories over and over again. But I remember, you know, as I was a young person growing up, I, my, I thought my dad was just the most creative wonderful dad. He would come home and play all these just amazing games with me. I remember him coming home and he had a suit on and you know right when he got home we did all these games and then it wasn't until I went to medical school that I realized that it was basically a complex neuro exam. You know, he was, he was, <laughs> he was doing a num- mini mental status right, on you? No, he was writing num- <laughs> numbers on my hand and asking what they were with my eyes closed. We did a lot of finger, nose, finger, and these types of things. Wow. <laughs> now my kids also have me play these, you know, games with them, and it's, it's sort of a similar story. So you story. were, the first thing you drew was a clock with... Uh, that's right, all that's right. made all the numbers, <laughs> right? But no, and I, I mean, I think in all honesty, that the reason why I, I, I you know, cared so much about his profession, and my mom as well, as two working parents, they both just loved what they do, and, and I think, you know, folks who know me around here know that there, there's probably no one who enjoys their job here at UCSF, just thinks it's such a privilege to do what I get a chance to do than I do. I mean, I just love it, and, and for me, these were two people who just loved doing what they were doing, and that, that really made me want to do something along those lines, both of them in a field where they were helping people. And that was something that was really important to me. Now, back then in neurology, there wasn't that much you could do for a lot of patients. Did you have any sense of that and any concern as you thought about the field that, you know, obviously you could do a lot of caring for people, but the number of therapies, uh, the scans weren't very good at the time. There's a yeah. lot of pretty a lot of limitations. Uh, well, I was lucky. I mean, my father started practicing bef- bef- before there was MRI scans, bef- before, you know, had some of the early CT scans uh, during his training. And, and so... I never got a sense of that. I was really lucky that by the time I was an undergrad and by the time I got to medical school, it was really part of this 
revolution in, in neurology and neuroscience with all these incredible treatments and insights into the molecular biology of these disorders. And you know, I, I, for me, it was pretty hard to not get excited about the brain, uh, just so much of what, what makes us who we are and the fact that we could have patients with neurologic problems and then give them treatments and make them a lot better you know, meant a lot to me. And, I, and in the same time, and I know, you know we talk about this with, with folks in, in your field, whether it be in palliative care, or just general internal medicine or hospital medicine, just having connections with patients and that a lot of a treatment we sometimes can do in addition to medicines, uh, in addition to devices that we can help folks is just being able to care for them and their families in the most sort of vulnerable times when the nervous system is not working well you know, that very early on was something that really excited me. Uh, having that personal relationship to folks when the sort of chips are down, to me, is, is what really made me excited. Uh, so you went to Stanford, you went to WashU, you came out here for your residency, and then you did two or three different fellowships. I was trying to figure it out. So it yeah. seems like a pretty eclectic mix of additional training you did on, on top well, of general Well, it was unusual. Neuro. I mean, I, I really wanted, I, I loved caring for patients in the hospital. I thought stroke was incredibly exciting and sort of neurocritical care. And for me, um, I, I had grown up in a, in a laboratory in college studying Alzheimer's disease. And when I volunteered in college, it was with patients who had Alzheimer's disease. And so for me, I was particularly interested in where behavioral neurology meets the inpatient setting. So how do we think about all these terrible cognitive problems that our patients have in the hospital, some of which due to neurologic injury and some like delirium all over the medicine service, uh, really interest me. And, and I, I really wanted to get uniquely trained in sort of both areas, sort of think about stroke, think about behavioral neurology. And so, I, I, yeah, I did a few fellowships. I ended up being you know, boarded in vascular neurology and neurocritical care and completing a behavioral neurology fellowship. And for me... You know, it just gave me the, the training to be able to understand these diseases. I always, you know, I understand, I, I work obviously very closely with our residents and our, our fellows, and there's always this tension of how much additional training to get, and at some point it's just, that's too much, probably. Mm -hmm. right. But for me, I, I just felt like here were two areas that I needed to understand in order to inform my research and my clinical work. And so, you know, in the medicine world, I think it's analogous to doing you know, interventional cardiology and maybe allergy, you know, something that's very, very... That, it would know, make no sense, though. There's no Venn diagram. I see. Well, maybe we'll get allergic to the dye. I'm not sure. But, you know, the, the bottom line is I, I just felt like I had to do both of them. But in neurology, I think you would find a lot of people, despite my story, who would say that makes no sense. Those are two yeah. very, very different things. They, they intersect uh, minimally. And for me, I, I thought that training was helpful. I had great mentors on both sides who let me do all the Well, I was wondering about mentors. We'll talk a little more about yeah. mentorship later. But the, what did mentors say to you when you proposed two fellowships that don't have that? Or not an obvious Venn diagram, and I'm guessing there wasn't more than a handful of people in the world who had done those two fellowships. Yeah, I'm not sure who else has, has done. I don't or know maybe how many. Zero. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, one of the great things about UCSF neurology, and I, I think this is the case in many departments at UCSF, but I just know ours so well, is the answer when one proposes something unique, something proposes, somebody proposes something very different is, well, let's see how we can make that happen. I don't really see, I, mean, I remember Steve Hauser, who was chair at the time, said, I don't really see how those two come together. I'm not really sure there's that path forward, but geez, Andy, if you think this is a direction that has something exciting at the end, Let's figure out how we can support it for a while and, and make you successful. And that, that has been one of my biggest mantras, being able to, 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 to get a chance to mentor young people, is to say, oh, okay, if, that, if that's really what you want, let's figure out how we can make it happen. Let's see if it's successful. Rather than trying to, it would, be, it would have been very easy to try to smush me into a box and not allow that kind of different pathway. And and our department, I think a lot of the great things we've done, maybe most of the great things we've done, is when people have really done something very, very different. And so I, we try to support that in, in any way because my own personal experience is without that support, I, I honestly don't think without UCSF neurology I, I would have been able to do any of the kinds of things I do. It was just It's just a unique place for training in neurology, and that allowed me to to be able to take this very different path. So did you have a five or 10 year plan and say, 
here's the job that I want and the way I will get that is these this kind of training, or was it a little bit vaguer than that and I just, these are the things I'm interested in, I have some sort of sense that it'll work out? It's a little of both. So I had this five or ten year plan. I remember one of my mentors saying, hey, I want you to write down you know, where you're going to be in five years. I think that can be tremendously useful. And my plan was I was going to do sort of pure 100% sort of delirium research and cognitive deficits after stroke and neurologic injury in the hospital. And um, I did a lot of that. And that's what I still do. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. But somewhere three, four years into it, um, you know, partially because of relationships with you and just seeing how things happened at UCSF, this idea of wanting to take the lead and seeing if we could have inpatient specialists in neurology, see if we really could have neurohospitalists here at UCSF and, and nationally and whether that would make any sense really kind of took me as something very exciting. So and talk so about that. So, so what, what was it that made you think that, all right, I want to focus a little bit on the organization of care and then the idea, not sure everybody knows, but Andy was really the pioneer of the hospitalist idea as it got translated into neurology and wrote the first paper about it. And I, to this day, as folks know, you know, I may do a lot of things, but I'm ultimately someone who just loves caring for patients. And um, I didn't think our patients were getting great care in the hospital. I mean, it's really that simple. I, I, I think that neurologists nationwide and, and somewhat locally, you know, a lot of folks, we have these great, I mean, we have these wonderful people who were great at caring for patients. And then we had a subset of folks who, you know, were doing it, I think because they needed to or were told they needed to. So at to. the time, if to be a neuro attending, you rotated in you and maybe wrote, you did it one month a year. That's right. And, and we had great people. We had great legends. But, but, but part of the problem that, that happened, Bob, is that as neurology evolved in a specialty that was much more, had many more treatments and many that were very time dependent. We've got to deliver a treatment for status epilepticus or stroke or increase ICP very, very quickly. Um, you had to have somebody who was readily available, who were there at all times, and was comfortable with all these new treatments that were, that were coming out. Not to mention all we did on the consultative side with the increasingly complex patients in medicine and surgery and you name it, mm -hmm. who have these neurologic problems from these new medicines that were coming out in oncology and were coming out in you know, rheumatology. And so for me, I just didn't feel that a lot of the patients I was encountering were getting care from neurologists who really understood and, and all that was going on in the acute care setting. Our neurointensivist colleagues were, were kind of, sort of coming out at the time with neurocritical care, and I was sort of part of that, but that was very isolated to the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. And I saw this whole other subset of patients outside the intensive care unit with complex neurologic issues who I felt sort of needed experts in that, in that area, at least at least that's what they did part of their time. Right. You know, I'm so, a stroke do doctor part of the time, and I'm a neurohospitalist part of the time, and I think that's a great model. So I certainly know the pushback that I got in medicine when we started thinking about this in medicine. What did you get as you started promoting this in neurology? Well, you know, it, it, it locally, I, it was very well received. This was something that people thought was, you know, a really neat idea that we should try out that could be something great academically. And the way we went about it is we, we, we never said to folks, hey, you really shouldn't attend anymore. What we did is we said, okay, um, to be an attending, to run our service, here are the, here are the nine, ten things everyone's got to do. You've got to be at multidisciplinary rounds. You've got to be comfortable caring for patients with this, that, and the other disorder. We can go on and on. And what happened was, was that um, a, a lot of our attendings said, great, I'm happy to do that. That would be wonderful, and that worked out fine. And some attendings said, well, it's not quite right for me anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. Not doing so. I mean, at the time when we started um, more than a decade ago, I was the only neurohospitalist. So it meant I was on service for 10 months a year at the time, and that was a tremendous learning experience. And then, you know, we've subsequently, <laughs> I loved it. I and know you, saw, I saw, you remember? I watched, yes. And we've subsequently, we have a fellowship. We now have a very big division within our group. And so, you know, for me, and then it expanded into how can we make this model work nationally and thinking about national quality metrics and in inpatient neurology. And, I, and then it bled into outpatient quality metrics. And so, you know, a lot of things in neurology were a little bit behind internal medicine and other specialties, but I think we're, we're sort of catching up, putting the patient at the center and figuring out how we best can care for them. So you're known for a lot of things, but maybe uh, your teaching might be the first among them, and you've won every teaching award I think we have. Uh, I remember seeing you give a talk, maybe for the first time in M&M, probably when you were a resident, and I said, this guy's very special and has some innate ability to teach. So 
first of all, tell us where that came from and tell us a little bit about your philosophy of teaching. What are you trying to accomplish? Well, I mean, where it came from, I'm not, I'm not certain. I mean, I, I think in both undergrad and in medical school, I sort of took advantage of opportunities to teach. Um, I love it. I mean, I, I think there is nothing um, more rewarding than teaching someone, in my, in my world, neurology. I mean, I, I find that very fun. A lot, of the, a lot of the house staff in the audience suffered through our medical student course and so had to deal with me for 10 weeks uh, back, back then. Um, it, it's just such a privilege to teach people of all le levels that I, I just find it incredibly enjoyable. So where it came from was, again, it was just something that I, I did, I found enjoyable, I wanted to pursue it. I, I, you, know, you may be getting this sense that Andy didn't plan a lot of this out. It mm -hmm. just ended up being experiences in my life that I really enjoyed, that I really felt were worthwhile, I've tried to cultivate and get better at. And my, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, no, I was go, just going to say, my, yeah. my philosophy of teaching is to just try really hard to make sure I'm at the learner's level and understand the learner. As you've seen, I, I teach very differently when I'm teaching in medicine M&M than I'm teaching in brain movement and behavior than I'm teaching in one of your CME courses or when I'm teaching to neurologists. And I think so much of it is sort of understanding the learner and, and understanding that teaching can, like, always get better. Like I feel like I'm a better teacher this year than I was last year. And it's because last year I spent a lot of time in a self-critical way saying, what could I have done better? Whether it was those five minutes on rounds or a talk that I gave in front of a few hundred people. I just think it, it's one of these skills that it, it, you're not born with. You just get better and better the more you practice and think about it. And, and that's that's what I spend a lot of time doing when it comes you to teaching. You talk about you have two or three pearls that when you, when you see someone who you don't think is all that effective a teacher, you would say, here are the, if they could do these three things, they'd be much better. Well, I mean, the first was the thing I just said, which is you've just got to know, know your learners. I mean, I, I, when subspecialists get in front of medicine docs, for instance, seasoned medicine physicians at one of your CME courses, for instance, Bob, and they just don't understand what they know about gastroenterology or neurology or hematology, it's just the, it's, the, it's the death now. I think that's number one. Number two is, as you know, I try to infuse a lot of humor when I, when I teach. And I think that you know, we are talking, especially in neurology, about such heavy subjects. I mean, these are people with nervous system injury who often have life-threatening diseases or certainly diseases that will leave them potentially not like they were before. Um, why it's, not make that funny? It's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to deal with. And yeah. if you go for 45 minutes on that without injecting any humor or a breathing point or, or something that ties it into their daily, that, that's, real, that's real trouble. So, I, I mean, those are probably the two things I always live by. And then the third is just it's a heck of a lot of work. You know, when I give a lecture, you know, I, just but one example, and the, the group will laugh, you know, one of the lectures I'm sort of known for giving is I give the brainstem lecture to the first-year medical students. And some of them shaking many their have, heads, yeah. have dealt with this All before. Right. <laughs> I've given a, a similar lecture for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Every year, I give that talk two or three times in my uh, bedroom uh, leading up to the talk. I practice it again, the timing of it, the slides, et cetera. And, and I guess my third point is like teaching is hard work. Yeah. Like you really have to prepare and practice it. Um, I don't, maybe some people do, but I don't have the innate ability to be able to just do a talk and hope it goes well. I practice very hard, you know, all aspects of the talk beforehand. This is incredibly important because if you've heard Andy speak, it's, it feels effortless. It, it's, it often feels like, Wow, he just—he was born knowing how to do that, and so knowing how much work it takes is really actually quite helpful. Um, I saw one of the teaching awards you won is the Golden Toe Award. Oh, everyone loves the Golden. Do you have a Golden Toe? What does that mean? <laughs> so the Golden Toe Award is the award that we award as a uh, our residents uh, each year. Name one teacher, sort of the teacher of the year. You can only win it once. Uh, it's named after Bob Laser, one of our sort of legendary uh, physicians who's still in our department, a neuromuscular specialist. And the award itself is a uh, golden uh, foot with an extensor plantar response. We're pretty nerdy in yeah. the neurology world. <laughs> and it turns out that the foot, it, this award was started when, when Dan Lowenstein, now our provost, was, was uh, a resident. And the foot is a mold that Dan made of his then, I don't know, two-year-old, it was even less than that, maybe a year-old son's 
foot. Wow. So there is actually a foot. It gets passed from person to person. So you don't have the golden toe at your Unfortunately, house? Unfortunately, no, I don't. It gets passed like, on every like year. And we jacket. tell people, yeah, if, yeah if, you, if you break this thing, you're in huge trouble. <laughs> with, so please don't break the them. toe. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> you gave the commencement address for the med students here. What did you, you choose to talk about? Well, you know, this is another sort of knowing your, knowing your audience. I, I, I gave a talk, uh, it, was a, it was many, many years ago now, or a few years ago now, um, and I really focused on what it was like being a new doctor. Uh, I, I, I have such memories. I, I mean, I remember every moment of July 1st of my intern year in this department in, in medicine. I remember the patients I saw, I remember what I did that day, and I remember how much I screwed up, which was a heck of a lot. And that's one of the messages I gave during that commencement address was just what it was like to be a new doctor, how exciting it was, but that, you know, we all are going to mess up a lot. And, 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 and making sure that you expect that, don't get down about that, figuring out how you have your own identity as a physician was something I spent a, a lot of time talking about. That was, a, that was a tremendous honor that the class allowed me to give that, that speech. I know you've given a number of commencement speeches yourself, Bob, but it, it was you know, one of the highest honors I've ever gotten. And, and, and there's a speech. If I could tell you the number of times I practiced that one, uh, I was really apprehensive about giving yeah, that. scary. Yeah. Uh, you've been head of the Ethics Committee for a long time. How did you get into that? Well, <clears throat> again, it's sort of this idea of things I, I really found interesting. You know, in neurology, we have an opportunity to interact with lots of patients in the hospital who have difficult things going on, and that includes... Uh, neuroethics and, and ethics in general. And then there's this whole s other subset of patients in the hospital who never see a neurologist, have nothing neurologic going on, but have these ethical conundrums. You know, how do we best care for patients? How do we deal with conflicts between um, many, many different tensions? And sometimes it's the, the patients or their families and the physicians in conflict. Sometimes it's the physicians and other members of the staff in conflict. And sometimes it's the physician and the patient and the system in conflict. And, and I was given an opportunity when I was a junior attending to participate in a couple of these ethics consults. And I just found it, you know, about as, as fun as something could be. Um, tremendous weighty issues. Um, difficult issues. No good answers. But I felt that I enjoyed and kind of had a knack for helping folks talk through these types of issues. And so for the last, I don't know, it's been about 10 years, I've chaired our ethics committee that does consultations throughout the hospital on patients who have difficult ethical dilemmas, and I've had an opportunity to mentor a number of people in that role, and I think we, we are a service that, that, that gets involved, and when we're able to get involved in a case, it, it really ends up being a, um, something very intellectually stimulating. Did you need additional training for that? I did. So I didn't do a formal you know, ethics curriculum, if you will, or get a master's in, in ethics, but I, I spent a lot of time in a variety of settings, sort of learning more ethics, learning more neuroethics. Um, and for me, it was, it's again one of these things I feel like I can get better every year on it. I'll do an ethics consult and I'll walk away and I'll say, yeah, but that five minutes when we were talking about that, I didn't really conceptualize that well. I didn't explain that well to the group. And so it's, it's just a matter of trying to get better year by year. The field you chose, neurology, is changing drastically in terms of better understanding of the way the brain works, and then the clinical trials portion of it, it seems like every week there's a blockbuster. So talk about the evolution of the field that you've seen in your lifetime uh, in, in it and how that's changed your leadership role. Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, ultimately our department, which, um, you know, we, we, we really think about all of our missions as a whole, we're a big research department. We have a tremendous amount of basic science research in neuroscience. We have a tremendous amount of clinical research in neuroscience and something that we all are invested in because we think that the types of research that we really focus on are those areas of research that are going to lead to breakthroughs that help, help patients. And, and as you say, I mean, the pace of discovery in neuroscience has just been amazing to behold. I think the other piece that's been exciting is how neuroscience interacts with other specialties. You know, some of our biggest breakthroughs, for instance, our big, uh, big multiple sclerosis breakthrough has to do with really understanding neurology and, and immunology. Mm -hmm. And um, neurodegenerative disease really has gotten into neuropathology so much and how program cell death occurs, et cetera. We could go on and on with these examples. 
I think one of the things we've learned in neurology, and this is really important to how we run our department, is that we cannot be insulated. That so much of what we do depends on specialists, researchers from multiple different areas. Um, this Weil Institute for Neurosciences that we announced uh, due to a generous gift of Joan and Sandy Weil just a year ago, you know, ultimately is really bringing together the fields of neurology and psychiatry, which I think is just silly that they're two different fields. These are two different fields that deal with problems of the brain. And, you know, schizophrenia is a neurodegenerative disease. A lot of what we study are behavioral diseases. And so it's, it's very artificial. And so I think what you're seeing in neurology... You're talking to an internist who thinks neurology, the brain, is just another organ and could have easily lived in our, our department. That's right. Uh, that's right. But remember, all these organs are sort of supporting this organ. Ah, yeah. so, so. But, the, uh, but, the, but, the, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think what, what this pace of discovery and our, our just push to get better at, at, at getting bed-to-bedside occurring quickly, what it's led to is, is, a, is a real feeling that when we're talking about disease of the nervous system, this is a collaborative effort that goes far beyond neurology and even far beyond pure neuroscience. And so we've tried, in my leadership role, we've really tried to design ways in which our investigators can easily interact with other investigators, not only across the campus, but across the globe, to, to make these discoveries. And, and, and that, for me, has been incredibly rewarding. I, I, my my uh, life in neuroscience began in a basic science neuroscience lab, um, but I, I don't live in that world now. I, I'm not a basic neuroscientist. That's not where I've, I've chosen to spend much of my time. And We've got incredibly talented people. So being able to support them and to really push forward our research mission, which is you know, one of the key things I work on on a daily basis, has been exciting. And these collaborations have, I, I think, really allowed us to, to do things and creative pieces that, that other places haven't been able to. Talk a little bit about time management, because you've told us you're chairing a huge department. You still do research. You still see a fair number of patients. You teach a lot. You run the ethics committee still. How does that all work? Well, I mean, I think uh, I'm busy. I think we're all all busy. Um, it helps I don't <coughs> sleep that much. That, that much has been helpful. How much do you sleep? Um, not a lot. Not a lot. Three, four, no, five? You know, somewhere along those lines. I'm one of these weird, you know, Louis Potasic in our, in our department uh, really, really um, uh, has defined some people with uh, sleep differences where they they have shorter sleep or they wake up a little bit earlier. And I tend to wake up pretty early, things along those lines. But the bottom line is, <laughs> stop that. Let's, let's, let's Sounds like as far as you want to go there. I but I think <laughs> when it comes to time management, I, I think I'm, I'm very careful. I'm protective of, of time for each of these endeavors. And I'm protective of time with myself and my family. And I, I think it's important that we understand that we're generally better physicians, better at what we do if we're taking time for ourselves outside of our professional roles. And, 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 and so I'm, I'm very careful how I plan the week. And I, I tend to say during this period of time, I'm focusing on X, and then this period of time, I'm focusing on Y. One of the things that for me is just so exciting about being in academics is that you know, my life actually changes from month to month. So just yesterday, we had the final exam in our first-year neuroscience course that I direct, the brain movement and, and behavior course. And, and so for the last seven weeks, all, all I've really done is teach the first-year medical students. I mean, that, that's been, I, I'm not on service. My research kind of gets a little quieter. And I've, I've just, that's what I've done. And now, just about the time where I thought, yeah, that's, that's been a lot, really time to do something else, it ends, and I can focus, uh, focus elsewhere. So that sort of sinusoidal piece to my life, whether it's being on service, whether it's um, thinking about um, uh, education, that, that's really very fun. And it allows me, I think, in time management to sort of compartmentalize things. And then above all this is sort of my role as chair and, and, and mentoring young people, whether it's working really closely with each and every one of our residents or some of the students. Um, that, that sort of is always there. And, and you know, that just makes you think it's all worth it. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of been my, my way forward. So talk a little about mentorship and, and the best advice you got and the advice that you like to give to people. Well, I mean, I think that I've gotten a lot of great, I'm lucky, I've gotten a lot of great advice. I, I think some of the themes we've talked about before, do what you like. Um, don't let somebody tell you, well, that's impossible because it's a new or different idea and try to, try to chase it. I, I think that's important. And then just sort of work incredibly hard. Uh, th those are sort of the, 
the key areas of, of mentorship that I've, I've got. I've gotten a lot of great advice. I've gotten a lot of bad advice. So what, what's, what are examples of bad advice you got? Well, I mean, I think a lot of them had to do with the opposites of things we've said. That, oh, well, this is a more traditional path. It would be much safer. You should really, you should really do that. Um, or, or don't, I, I always tell people I'm mentoring, don't take on too many things. And I think that is good advice. But I think the corollary is that if there's a few different things you like to do, try to do them all, but you've got to do them well. Yeah. And if you get to the point where you feel like, I can't do all these things well that I'm being asked to do, then you have too many things. Mm -hmm. I, I really work with all the residents in our department and the junior faculty when I meet with them. It's just sort of how to say no. I think around here, that's really tricky. You have to be protective of the things that are meaningful to you. And I also think to some extent, advice I always got that was good was that you got to realize after a while what you're good at and what you're not as good at. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if teaching is something you're, you're talented at, then, then by all means, not only pursue it, but get really, really good at it. And you could say the same thing about all the various, various aspects that we've touched on or that all of us do on and our what, daily what basis. And what is the answer to how to say no? So I think the answer on how to say no is, one, be prepared to do so. And then number two is to have somebody who's more senior to you, who's your division chief, who's your department chair, who's whatever, who, who says to you up front, uh, feel free to invoke my name. I say that all the time to people. Mm -hmm. you know, feel free to say no to something if you don't think it's a good opportunity. I'm happy to talk about it with you. And you can feel free to blame me for that. Say, well, Andy, you know, I'd love to do this, but Andy really says I need to focus on X, Y, or Z. I think we as sort of mentors around here need to, need to provide the, the cover and the protection for our younger folks to be able to say no to, to things when it's you know, perhaps not the best for their career. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about the direction that UCSF is going in? I mean, you're now, you're now in a large leadership role. You're seeing the strategic direction, and it's getting bigger, and the research is getting more complicated and all that. How do you, how do you think we've positioned ourselves? Well, I think it's very exciting. I mean, I, we're in such an unusual position where we are able to grow our research mission at the same time we're growing our clinical mission while remaining excellent in education and doing creative things and really pushing our missions of diversity and global health and public health. And it's just such a unique place to be. Um, that being said, I think you know, our biggest tensions as a department uh, involve the fact that we're spread out across multiple sites. And I've talked a lot about how we try really hard to build community within our department. You could say the same thing about the school at large or the campus at large. But we're challenged that we're all spread out. Um, we all have now become huge. When I joined our neurology department, our number of faculty, I, I can't tell you the exact number, but we probably had 50, 60, 70 faculty. We almost have about 200 faculty now. Mm -hmm. And when you get to 200 faculty, it's nothing like the Department of Medicine, but when you get to 200 faculty, you know, figuring out when we should all come together around which types of topics and which things doesn't make sense for us all to be in the same room or all to be connected electronically, I think that's really tricky. Mm -hmm. I, I am very acutely aware of what I view as a concern around continuing to keep our community together. And so we spend, we actually, we just did this big strategic planning initiative and one of our pillars that we looked at was community mm -hmm. because we wanted as a department to figure out how we can make sure that people still felt part of the department, we're able to tap into those exciting collaborations, would all be able to, to interact with our residents and fellows who are sort of put on this incredible pedestal in our department as the people we're all trying to encourage and have a chance to work with. And I think that's the tension. We've mm -hmm. just gotten large, like any other organization, and we've got to figure out how we can still be together and, and work towards some common goals, even though we may all be very different. The other tension I experience, and I think you probably do too, is as each of these areas gets bigger and more complicated, it's hard to be a triple threat. The researchers are tending to focus more on the research. The clinical world is getting busier and the productivity pressures are greater. How, do you, how are you balancing those? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think to some extent that's correct. At the same time, the other tension is um, when our folks who do translational research have a chance to not only see patients but to be able to interact with our residents and students and teach them not only about the patient but about how their research is, uh, you know, is relevant, that's when you know, the light bulbs all go off and you know, stars fall from the ceiling. So you know, being able to figure out ways in which our communities can still interact despite the fact how complicated it is, having our clinicians who are on service, who are pure clinicians, 
on the inpatient or outpatient side really understand what we're doing in the research space as a department and understanding cutting edge research and be able to give ideas to our researchers so we could do you know, bedside to bench uh, and then vice versa be able to get those treatments to folks. I think that's the, that's the magic that we try to create. So there's a tension between both that I don't think there's good answers, but we spend a heck of a lot of time trying to think about it. Is there an Alzheimer's breakthrough coming soon? I sure hope so. I think that we have, we have gotten to the point in Alzheimer's where, you know, I, I know this is being recorded, but we're 48 hours since Bill Gates announced a, a huge gift to try to, to try to make progress in Alzheimer's disease. And I think th this, this, our department, and more importantly, our, our campus in general, is, I think, uniquely positioned to be part of those breakthroughs. I think there's a lot you know, right on the launch pad in the next few years. I, it, it's hard to imagine another disease that is so desperate for effective treatments and that will affect so many of us and, and our loved ones that I, I spend a lot of time worrying about how we're going to make sure that we're attacking this disease in, in every way possible as a department. And so much of this is collaborative nationally and internationally. I, I think we're, we're close, and there's a lot of directions currently you know, being explored. But um, when we get to that point, that's going to be something that really changes the lives of, uh, of millions of Americans, obviously. And we're here in Silicon Valley, and what you pay attention to is a version of a computer, I guess, or a computer is a version of that. Uh, how does the technological revolution impact the field of neurology going forward? Well, I think tremendously. I mean, I, I think whether we're talking about um, decision-making and sort of artificial intelligence-type pieces when we're thinking of big data sets when it comes to thinking about our clinical research, again, behind, I think, internal medicine in terms of what we've done, or whether when we think about how technology is really what advances much of what we do in the laboratory, um, I think that's important. You know, there's very few, in my mind, discoveries in neuroscience that haven't really started with some technological breakthrough, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, thinking about a, a tool that you can use in the lab or something that really allowed us to reconceptualize how we could quickly move data through the laboratory, so much of it. And so we have spent a lot of time cultivating these partnerships. We're really lucky where, we're, where we are in Silicon Valley. It's, it's helped us with, with intellectual development, and it's helped us with philanthropic development in terms of thinking about how we can interact with various companies. It, it, we, are, we are really fortunate, and I can't imagine that the next breakthrough, whether we're talking about Alzheimer's, whether we're talking about another disorder, um, isn't going to hinge on that kind of partnerships with industry and technological breakthroughs. So maybe my last question. You seem to have a huge amount of fun in everything you do. Do you ever have a bad day? I have all sorts of bad days. I, I think that's, that's uh, you know, and if we keep going here, this will you know, potentially turn into one with these personal questions, Bob. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody has good days and bad days, but, but I, I sort of wake up every morning and honestly pinch myself that I'm able to do all this. I mean, UCSF, has been so kind that I get to do all the things, some of the things we've talked about here. And I, I, you know, you're not going to find anyone who likes their job better. And so when you're having one of those bad days, you take a moment, you see a patient, you talk to a, a, a junior colleague or a resident and hear what they're doing, and it, it really sort of fills you up with a tremendous amount of joy. I, I'm just, you know, every day really excited that I get a chance to do this. Well, we are lucky to have you. Uh, we have about 10 or 15 minutes left. I'll throw it open and see if uh, folks have any questions or comments. Thanks for being here, first of all, and sharing all this. I think it's helpful for us to see um, somebody role modeling so many of the great things we hear about. Um, one thing that you talked about um, that I'm curious to learn more about is you have the education, patient care, research, and administrative tasks on your plate. And you talked about personal time management a little bit. Um, but one thing I'm curious to hear your perspective on is in terms of financial reimbursement, some of those are more... Um, you know, or given more, um, yeah, money to do than um, education in particular. Um, and I know that's institution dependent. Um, but with that in mind, how have you found time to carve out and prioritize education? And um, do you have any advice on negotiating positions to make sure, you know, if we're interested in education, that that's part of our 
uh, portfolio. Just be careful. He's probably going to be negotiating with yeah, me for a job that. in a couple of years, <laughs> so this may come back. That's Go right. ahead. No, I, I, first of all, it's a great question. Thanks. I, I, I remain uh, concerned, and we have been concerned for many years, especially as we've um, sort of developed the health system here, that you wonder if education becomes sort of the forgotten uh, leader in that, in that we, we, we know how we pay for research. We know how we pay for clinical work, but how do we pay for those great educators? And I think the school's done a, a very wonderful job in investing in leaders in education, people who run a clerkship, people who run a course, et cetera. That's been just something that UCSF does that I think very few other places do. But I think we need to take it a step further and think about how we invest in educators who spend maybe only some of their time. They're spending a clinic a week or two clinics a week with a resident or with a medical student. Our department's really um, been a pioneer in this world in that we have come up with a plan and we're in a, this is gonna launch probably in the next 12 months or so, where we're going to invest in sort of a way to, and Bob knows this, we invest in a way to reward those frontline educators for their education work. Because I think the problem we can get into is a situation where someone says, I'd love to have that resident in my clinic but it would be much faster, I would be able to generate more income if I could just do it myself uh, because I'm not gonna make any money from that piece. Um, we are hoping to be an example for other neurology departments and other departments sort of uh, throughout the school because this is something that we, we think we've got a good plan for and we're just starting this year in a sort of data gathering stage and we've put aside actually a fair amount of money as a department to invest in this. I, I think it's crucial because if you think about what is the you know what is the one thing that an academic medical center does that's unique it's education there's other places that do research there's other places that give clinical care and and it's one of the best things about UCSF whether it's our residency your residency or medical students or you know you could go on and on or our postdoctoral fellows this is the key of what makes this place great and if we're not able to invest in it if we're not able to reward it like we do all of our other pieces of the mission, then, then we're going to be in real trouble. So I, I view this as something we need to do. And far, as far as negotiating, I hope you're going to be in a position when you're ready to have that conversation where a lot of this is worked out, where, where educational activities are more rewarded on a, on a broader scale, not just for those individuals, as UCSF has always done, who play large, large reader, leadership roles, but people on the front lines. Take that a step further. It's possible to be negotiating with a place that has not figured out the intricacies of uh, what Andy's talking about is something called educational RVUs, basically try, trying to come up with a value of an educational encounter the way we have a value for a clinical encounter. So let's say he's negotiating in a place that has not done that because 99.8% of places will not have done that. Any tips on getting sort of the right job if part of what you want to do is be an educator? Well, I think that you know most places have a set expectation for everyone on the faculty. That's the baseline amount of teaching that you need to do as a faculty member, and that's part of the part of the game. I mean, that's part of what you're signing on for. If you're going to be a professor at place X, this is the amount of teaching that's required. And, and I think that's just part of it, and that's probably not going to be rewarded. But if you're someone who wants to do something beyond that, I don't want to just do the baseline amount of teaching. I want to do X, Y, or Z then I think that's an expectation that you set down at the beginning. You say, this is what I like, and um, that's going to take X percent of my time, and then work out how that's paid for. And there's lots of different ways that can be paid for. This is, this is very, very tricky business. I always tell people when they're negotiating for jobs, and this works out often not great for me personally, is, <laughs> is go ahead and just say what you want to do. Like come up, write down. There's tremendous advantage to writing down that, as Bob talked about, where you want to be in five years. And when you're thinking about a job, what would my ideal job look like? This is what I would do on a daily basis. This is how I would break down my time. Present that and say, okay, together can we think about how close we can get to this and how we would pay for this. Because I, I just, again, my philosophy is, is letting people do the kinds of things that they find fulfilling. And if you do that, that's going to be a faculty member who's really successful, as opposed to someone who we try to put into a, a cubbyhole that they're, they're not really interested in being. When someone negotiates with you, are you put off when they have been a little bit forward and said, here's what I want to do, and it's ambitious, and I'm going to be asking you for some resources? Or no. is that something you find attractive? That's what I find great. Yeah. I mean, that, that, those are the kind of, I'm a, 
I'm a, as you can imagine, I'm a pretty straightforward guy to negotiate with. I want to know what you need to be successful, and then we need to figure out whether, whether we can make that happen and how we can make that happen. And maybe my job is to go out and raise some money to make it happen, but you know, I, we, we invest in people. I mean, so much of my, my job has been, and what I love about UCSF is I'm, I'm very much a people person. I love getting to know all sorts of people, and if we've got the right person and they've got a great great idea for how they're going to launch a career, whether it be in any of our missions, from pure clinician to pure researcher to pure educator to somewhere in between, then we should be able to figure out a way to keep that person around and support them in their, in their, in their mission. And that's how we've, I think, been so fortunate to have such great faculty and, and, and young people in neurology. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, all the way in the back. Sorry. Let's get a mic to you and, uh, and also then say who you are. Hey, I'm Sajan Patel. I'm one of the uh, hospitalists. Nice to see you, Annie. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the talk. This has thanks. been really enlightening. Um, my question for you is, given how prolific your career has been, the number of titles you hold, and how much time you spend in the hospital, how do you find time for your personal life or make time for it in practicing self-compassion? How would you suggest that we role model that for our trainees? Well, I, I think it's a great question. I think, number one, uh, one has to understand its importance. Uh, one cannot have the idea that personal life is something that I do when work gets quiet. Um, one has to, no matter where you are in your career, make this a priority because I firmly believe, and we say this to our faculty all the time, that if, if you don't do that, the work will suffer. You won't enjoy it. You won't do as good of a job, et cetera. So I, I'm very careful about carving out those times in my day, in my week, in my month that are really for personal time. And I'm, I'm quite protective of them. And, and folks know this is a time where Andy's, you know, Andy's, Andy's off the clock to some extent, even though everybody knows my cell phone pretty much in the whole hospital and calls me at any hour. If there's a question, I'm happy to do that. But, but I, I think one really has to carve out those times because if one does not, that's where I see, you know, we talk a lot about burnout. In the world of neurology nationally, I think it's less of a problem here, but nationally neurologists are you know, in the top 25% when you talk about specialties with burnout. We're pretty darn high for a variety of reasons. And I think a lot of that, not all of that, but a lot of that is a feeling of you're not in control of your schedule and that you don't have carved out your own personal time. So I would say no matter who you are, no matter what level of training you're at, being very clear about what time is your own, what time is away, and understanding that it is not just, you know, so I can have fun, it's, it's because if you don't do that, the work, the professional life will suffer. No one is going to be a better physician, a better doctor, a better academic neurologist or whatever um, by working more and not and giving up that personal time. It's just that essential. Andy, great talk. Thank you. Uh, Steve Ludwin, Hospital Medicine. Um, and you've alluded, this, alluded to this in your talk, um, and certainly the people at UCSF you know, top to bottom are incredible. It's just an incredible group of people. Um, in your experience, both students and house staff and junior faculty, the, the ones that really kind of blew you away, that were incredibly exceptional, was there any, like, shared characteristics uh, amongst that group? And, and if, if there are that come to mind, if you, if you don't mind sharing with us. Well, that's a great question. I, I, that's one I'd love to have, Steve, an hour to think about. But I, <laughs> I would say off the top of my head in 10 seconds, um, I, you know, I, I, I think that generally they are people who just love being here and love what they do. And, and whether, again, across whatever it is you like to do, these are people who every day are enjoying it. It's usually people with good humor and people who are just really kind of happy to be around. I think that is, a, that is a common one. You know, work hard. I think everybody here works really hard. So they're, they're hard workers, but they're people who really, really enjoy their job. The final thing I'd say is that so much of it is vision. It's knowing what it is you want to do ultimately. And as a student, as somebody you know, just starting out as a faculty, you may not know, but at least you're thinking about that. You're having some introspection into, well, geez, I, I did that for the last month. I don't like that very much, or, or that's something I really did like. So I don't think that people at whatever level need to all know exactly where they're going to be 20 years from now, but I think one should give it a shot, and then most of the great people 
revise that shot every few months and say, well, wait a second. No, actually, I like that better. And those are the people I've seen be, be really, 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 really successful. But the, the final thing, as you know, Steve, is that I've just been impressed, and maybe this is a UCSF thing, at the diversity of people, personalities, who are successful around here. That, that, uh, that there's much more not in common in our successful people than is, uh, than is in common. And I, I think that's a testament to the university. I think that's a testament to San Francisco and where we live in the Bay Area. And I think that, that means we're, we're doing something right in that regard. So since you now have to spend a fair amount of your time interviewing candidates for various jobs, leadership positions, do you have a favorite question, the question that helps you discriminate who's going to be successful? I don't. You know, I'm just getting ready. Next week, we will start residency interviews. I've interviewed every resident uh, applying to this program for the last decade or so. And I have never asked the same question to everyone. I don't do that. You don't have a formal list. I just have a a conversation. So I don't have that gotcha question or how many. I remember in in college, there was this, um, there was a consulting firm who their, their question was always, how many pennies are at Stanford Mall right now? You had to think about, well, there's ashtrays in the parking lot or whatever, and it was some measure of, of uh, I guess, well, how well you thought of things. I don't have anything along those lines. I, I basically just ask people what they like to do and have a nice conversation with them. And I, I feel like within you know, 10, 15 minutes of talking to someone, I can get a good sense of, of who they are. I guess it's just my innate sort of love of getting to know a bunch of different people. I, I view it very much as a conversation. Well, I think that's part of, uh, part of what you're looking for, it sounds like, which is, is someone not only with passion, but someone who wants to keep learning. And I think that's right. I mean, your entire career has been, you've gone in a direction, said, I really am interested in this, and I'm going to learn about that. And that's, a, that's, that's an innate skill that you have, I think. Yeah, I think the keep learning piece, that lifelong learning piece, no matter where you are in medicine, is something I've always, I've always really held on to. I, I feel like I just can, can, can always get better, and it's something I, I really strive to do throughout. Great. Well, we're out of time. Andy, this was terrific. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.